This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of the tragedy of Macbeth. of my thumbs something wicked this way comes all right everybody you were just listening to the trailer for the tragedy of macbeth and the story is as follows after being convinced by three witches a scottish lord sets out to become the king of scotland the film is starring denzel washington francis mcdormand Corey Hawkins, Brendan Gleeson, Harry Melling, Catherine Hunter, Moses Ingram, and Alex Hassel. It is written and directed by Joel Cohen. Here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Evo Day. Hello. Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And Dan Bear. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Almost as good as Catherine Hunter. Almost. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I can do creepier. (laughs) Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay, maybe maybe let's not go that far. (laughs) All right, so we are talking today about the newest film from Joel Cohen. Just Joel Cohen. No Ethan Cohen. Uh, Ethan has apparently decided that he is done making movies and doesn't want to necessarily uh, work on that anymore. Um, Apparently him and Joel are still on good terms. Everything's fine. Just Ethan would prefer to work on other creative avenues at this stage in his life while Joel is continuing to work in the realm of cinema. And here he is teaming up with his wife, Frances McDormand, as he frequently does, um, to bring us a adaptation of a very popular Shakespeare play, which has been done on film i think like over 20 times at this point Uh, it's like really really crazy and there have been so many memorable adaptations of the story of Macbeth here that you know you kind of have to sit back and ask yourself well what can be done with the story that hasn't already been done before and then you remember well this is joel cohen ladies and gentlemen (laughs) One of the best filmmakers that we've had in our lifetime. So naturally, he has found a way to make the story of Macbeth here, or the tragedy of Macbeth, one should say, uh, unique, fresh, while also paying tribute to a style of cinema that has long been forgotten. And in a way, it feels like this merger of both old and new kind of coming together here. The film is currently at this time of this recording playing in theaters in limited release and will be streaming on Apple TV Plus on January 14th. And in the lead role of Macbeth, we have Denzel Washington. So you have this incredible pairing of two world-renowned, Academy Award-winning powerhouse actors in Washington and McDormand, one of the best filmmakers in the world, and Joel Cohen, adapting one of the greatest writers uh, in the history of history, (laughs) William Shakespeare, Shot in Black Wife by Bruno Delbanel. Holy crap. Like, on paper, this is a can't-miss type of scenario here for a film, right? So, what did we think of it? Well, 
passing it over first to Eve O'Day. Eve, what did you think of the tragedy of Macbeth? So I absolutely loved this movie just from the get-go. I'm very intrigued by cinematic adaptations of Shakespeare. I think I'm very critical of them because you already have such a amazing story and such amazing set of dialogue to start with. And it's really interesting to see how different filmmakers throughout history have tackled this man's work and made it their own, made it accessible to viewers or made it completely distant and esoteric. I just absolutely, from the get-go, love the look of this movie. Like you said, it has inspiration from certainly an older style of filmmaking. Most obvious one that comes to mind is um, Olivier's Hamlet and this just overt use of sound stages to make a very unearthly, very fantastical sort of setting. And the other comparison I would make would be to Derek Jarman's uh, Edward II, which is a sort of atemporal queer retelling of a play written around the same time as Shakespeare's works. I just thought that this, they, they just absolutely knocked every aspect out of the park. I thought all the performances were wonderful. The cinematography, the production design was amazing. We'll talk about that in more detail later. And I just really think it was a unique take on the themes of the story. It really used the perspective of the fear of tyranny as the sort of main theme that I thought maybe other, uh, where other folk uh, adaptations of Macbeth have sort of focused more on the the madness of the king. But I think Shakespeare tackles that more so in other in his other plays. And this one is really more about the abuse of power and what happens when we don't have smooth transitions between leaders and um, a ruler that is is obsessed only with the purpose of ruling rather than being a good leader. I definitely agree with what you're saying here in regards to the themes. And I think that that is definitely what gives this version, like you said, it's power for a modern audience today. And it is something that definitely spoke to me while I was watching as well. So I'm really glad that you brought that up there, Eve. Um, Dan Baer, we'll go over to you next, sir. What did you think of the tragedy <laughs> of Macbeth? So I have been a Shakespeare fan for a very long time. I was first introduced to um, the Tales of Shakespeare, which is basically like written story versions of all the plays when I was very young and then started reading the plays themselves in like middle school, like around sixth grade, I think. So I was, what, 11 or 12. And so I've loved it for a long time. I studied Shakespeare in college. He's one of my favorite playwrights. And Macbeth is one of my favorite of his plays. So I to say that I was looking forward to this was maybe an understatement. Um, I was really, really excited, especially since it was the um, opening night film at the New York Film Festival, which is where I saw it for the first time. And <laughs> the real star of this show, as far as I'm concerned, is Bruno Del Bono. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yes, Washington and McDormand get top billing and they're on the poster. Well, not really the poster, but they're the main image. But Bruno Del Bono is the star here. The cinematography steals the show at 
every turn. Um, I think the German expressionist uh, production design and cinematography, that is such a smart concept for a cinematic retelling of Macbeth. But I think that they have pared down the script much too much okay. for this. And I think that it leaves the characters with some gaps that they have to fill. The character arcs are not so as not a fully clear line from one point to another, so much as it's like stairs with some uh, stairs missing. <laughs> and the actors, I think, don't always fill in it in as smoothly as they could, which I did not think after my first viewing, but now after having reread the play and watching the film for a second time, I, I think I maybe gave Joel Cohen too little credit the first time I saw it um, and the actors too much, but I'm very interested to talk through that with y'all. Okay. All right. Interesting. And Josh Parm. Tragedy Macbeth, what did you think? So my thoughts are going to be very similar to what has already been said. I think that you cannot deny just what a technical marvel this movie is. I think that it looks and sounds incredible. And it, to the point where it's almost kind of surprising from a Cohen uh, brother, because I have obviously very much enjoyed their directorial efforts in the past, but this really feels like something that is very unique and something that kind of stands apart from everything else in their filmography. So I don't know if this was just Joel trying something out on his own, but I I think that it makes a very bold artistic statement that I was very, very much uh, engaged with. I do agree with Dan that the, like, I think that there is some parts of this adaptation that do kind of condense some character arcs that I don't really care for all that much. And I do think that it rushes that a little bit, especially in the second half where it kind of feels like we're just sort of flying through a lot of stuff with these characters. And it does seem like we're going through a lot of material all at once that I think some of the power is lost a bit, but at the same time, you still have these really great performances, not just from Washington and McDormand, but I would argue from the entire cast. So it's a good movie. I don't think that it's perfect, particularly in that back end, but I still found myself really uh, entertained by it. And I do think that this is a pretty fascinating adaptation that I'm really glad that we have now. So one of the things that I find to be pretty fascinating overall about this is that it is condensed and it is shorter. And all the while, I was thinking to myself while watching this, it feels like they're cramming it with all of the stuff that would appeal to Game of Thrones fans. The hmm. siege uh, the, the, the siege of power, the political backstabbing, murder. There is a revolt and then there is also that is driven uh, and that is driven by uh, revenge. And it just feels like it has like all of these elements in here that would best appeal to a modern audience. And it does it all in under two hours hours for a black and white academy ratio film which was shot mostly on sound stages and as eve said before it really does evoke um, a style of filmmaking that goes back at this point 70 60 years it, it really does feel 
so incredibly modern at the same time and is something that even if you're not familiar with the Shakespearean language, if it's something that, you know, whether you were in grade school, high school, whatever, and you're just like, I never got it. I never understood it. I don't want to understand it. You can watch this film just simply play out in visuals alone and still get a sense of exactly what is going on if you weren't paying attention to the dialogue. Um, and I think that that was probably Joel Cohen's uh, intent here was to try and I don't want to say dumb down because I do think that that is a, just a tad bit condescending. So I don't want to necessarily go there. But I do think that there is this streamlined approach to it that has its pros and has its cons. The cons being what you've illustrated, Josh and Dan, is that in its attempt to really cram so much in an hour and 45 minutes, yeah, there does seem to be some connective tissue that is lost in terms of the character arcs here. Yeah, it's basically Macbeth, the greatest hits right it's all the big scenes and along with that every scene that you need to make sure that all, only the lines of dialogue that you need to connect everything to make sure that you get the story because there's a lot of plot in this in this play <laughs> i don't really agree i'm familiar with the play i'm not like an expert by any means but i didn't find it overly stripped down. I kind of had that expectation going in just from reading people's reviews that it was a sort of stripped down, almost <laughs> bastardized version of the script. And I didn't really find that at all. I didn't have a problem with the runtime. I didn't think it was rushed. It felt, it just felt extremely even to me and very well thought out. And may, the parts that weren't there, I personally didn't miss. So clearly they thought that out very clearly what they were going to remove and what they were going to keep in. The thing that I find very interesting, though, about this criticism is that the tragedy of Macbeth runs 105 minutes and Macbeth, uh, which came out in 2015 from Justin Kurzel, mm -hmm. uh, runs for 113 minutes. So in that difference of eight minutes here, why did that film version not suffer the same criticisms as this one has in regards to streamlining its story? I haven't seen that version. Did they include the um, scene between, I can never say this name right, Hecate? 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 The, Hecate. the head witch. Hecate. Hecate. Did they include the scene with her and the witches? I don't think so. Because I, I remember that scene is really kind of, it's controversial if I remember correctly. Like they kind of think it was added after Shakespeare and he didn't write it. So I haven't seen it since 2015, so I can't I can't be that specific. I don't remember that in in the Crizzle version. I, most productions I have seen of Macbeth take out that scene because it you don't really need it. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, witches are fun, so. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so like that's the thing, right? Like this doesn't need to necessarily be 3 hours long. I don't think, or two and a half hours long or anything like that to get across what it is trying to get across. And I do think that, like, as mentioned earlier, the themes that it is trying to get across, it gets across very, very well here. I think it is effective and nothing is necessarily lost in that adaptation. But in terms of their feeling like there is a rushness to the editing and to the plotting of everything. It feels like there are moments in this that could have had even greater emotional and dramatic impact 
if we had time to build up to them and then have them land with a th- with a heavy thud. You know what I mean? I completely agree, and I think that Cohen, in doing the script adaptation, has served the movie well by cutting it down to just the essentials. But I don't think that the actors solve the problems they need to by having only the most important data points to work with. Well, to their credit, they all get one standout scene or moment each actor does, and they do make the most of it. I I completely agree, but like so so I'll just say that like one of my big problems with Macbeth as a play in general is that in the text Lady Macbeth breaks officially off screen mm-hmm. off stage she is relatively speaking fine and then the next time we see her they're talking about how oh she sleepwalks and says crazy things and sees ghosts or whatever and that is definitely a problem in the text but in most uh, productions of Macbeth that I have seen, the actress playing Lady Macbeth, that is sort of their job is to make that a real arc as opposed to she was this way and now she's this way. You have to kind of thread the seeds of that madness earlier. And while Frances McDormand is fantastic on a scene by scene basis, she doesn't do a thorough enough job in threading that madness early and in increase in slightly increasing ways. It's just the first time, the last time we see her before the mad scene, her hair is undone and a piece of it is falling out. And that's not really in her performance, which is why to me, like that scene would have come, would have hit so much harder and her death also would have made, been so much more relevant if there had been a more of a building up to that in the performance. Well, I, I'm going to push back ever so slightly because I don't wholly disagree, but I think the thing that always kind of helps this with me in adaptations of this material is that early on after killing uh, Duncan, Macbeth is the one who is stricken with grief and Lady Macbeth is the more cunning, power hungry one that is pushing him towards yeah. uh, getting there. And then by the time we get into act, we'll, we'll, we'll just say we'll just say the later half of the play, their roles have reversed. Now Macbeth mm-hmm. is the power hungry one and Lady Macbeth is the one that's been stricken with uh, guilt over what she has done. And that's what's driving her to madness as well. So I think that because Macbeth's arc is more defined in this and because i already have a preconceived notion of how this is supposed to work in terms of both of their arcs like it it filled in the gaps for me but that could just be a me thing yeah I, i would say that i feel like if you have some familiarity you do get kind of where the story is going and i will freely admit that you know i'm not a shakespeare expert i don't know when was the last time i even read big beth or seen a production of it so you know (laughs) take that with the grain of salt that it is but even just watching this version of it it just felt like we got to a point in the story where it did just seem like we were just rushing through things and i think it really felt poignant to me when we got that second scene between Macbeth and the witches, like this reinvention of the cauldron scene, which on its own, brilliant. I love oh, that yeah. moment. But it it did seem like that information was presented 
And then it seemed like his next emotional state should not have come right after that, that we needed some time to kind of Mm -hmm. stew and simmer with it. And it felt like scene after scene was indulging in that, where it's like they would present a conflict that should be kind of, uh, they should sort of lay on the screen a little bit longer, but we're just rushing through it. And I didn't feel that so much in the first half, but in the second half, it really felt like that was uh, kind of, preventing the storytelling from really becoming so much more impactful. And that was sort of my main source of frustration with the film. I guess the thing that like I keep coming back to is that the presentation of the material outside of like the visual aesthetics, it's done in such a way that it, it really does remind me of both seeing an older film, like an older uh, classic style black and white film. But also it does feel like I am watching this on stage. And I think that their decision to shoot this exclusively on soundstage is with the exception of the final shot of the movie. I, I think obviously lends itself to both of those feelings of, hey, you're watching something that feels like it was made in the 1950s. And also, hey, look, doesn't this also feel like you're watching actors perform on a stage? And I do think that that kind of bleeds into the movie's presentation in a way that <laughs> from an editing and a pacing standpoint, it does play out differently than a normal conventional movie might if that make I don't know if I'm making sense here but I do think that their decision to present the story in this manner had an impact on how the story was cut if that makes sense that to I, me sounds more like a feat of directing than writing in the adaptation process to me yeah okay i mean that's fair sure uh but I, like i cuz i am trying to account for what you're saying here in regards to how that second half, because I agree with you, it happens after the witches visit Macbeth for the second time. It does feel like we're going full steam ahead at that point, And we're just moving from one big plot point to another big plot point. And it doesn't feel like we're ever having a moment to take a breather mm-hmm. to consider the impact of what is exactly happening. And Part of that is also because I do think that they are somewhat limited in regards to how they chose to shoot this production, having it done on these sound stages and not having, um, you know, large casts of like extras or anything like that in terms of scale and scope. You know what I mean? So on one hand, you have your your pros here in terms of how it evokes classic cinema and also feels very theatrical and then you have some of these cons that also are on the other hand with it too that impact the storytelling and in my mind i don't know which one is right and which one is wrong all i know is that it's unlike anything else i've seen this year and for that reason alone i love it (laughs) oh i absolutely it is completely unique and i do love that and i even love the fact that it feels like it came from another time. Like it feels a lot like actually um, the Laurence Olivier Hamlet. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. In a lot of, in a, there are a lot of shots. I mean, Delbano is obviously playing with that a little. I mean, like when they're in the tent in, early on in the first act and there's like the shadow of the trees in the background, like outside. Yeah. yeah. It, it doesn't look real. It definitely looks completely fake. But at the same time, it presents this, 
like almost German expressionism type of like look to it that I just like felt mm-hmm. felt was so evocative and stunning at times, you know? I think it was really smart to keep it atemporal. There's mm-hmm. really no timeline you can ascribe it to. I mean, obviously it's supposed to be what, like 13th century Scotland or something like that. The And there's obviously reference to that in the costumes and the setting and the weaponry and all that. But the fact that, you know, Lady Macbeth's clothing is completely modern and the there, I, I like that they, there was obviously a lot of thought put into, into that, into the production design and the costumes, but not from a, oh, well, it has to be historically accurate because I, I just think it allows for a lot of more, for a lot more room for expression and creativity. It's also very open. Yes. Right? It's not like crammed with small, tiny details the way that a Wes Anderson film is, for example. Like the production design in this movie feels very sparse. Yeah. No, it looks gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even the exteriors, uh, quote unquote, because we know they're not exteriors, um, even those had a look to them that it, it didn't feel natural, but also at the same time, it wasn't taking me out of the movie either because once again it felt like this was this is how they would have shot it back in you know the 50s if they were doing this all on sound stages so in a way it felt very similar to that it just has obviously this very beautiful digital sheen shot by bruno delbanel on it you know Mm-hmm. And then that's the other thing, too, I also wanted to uh, obviously talk about here because we kind of have to. And uh, I know it's already been mentioned already. Bruno Delbanel. Holy crap. Seriously, sir. What have you done? It's amazing. And it, it really mm-hmm. is, as we said, this wonderful method of making it seem rather modern, but also having the spirit of those older productions. And the fact that it is presented in Academy ratio is great wish other movies previously that kind of tried to do something like that <laughs> similar would have followed suit. But, you know, that's just me. This is a great example of that, though. And I, we all know he's a marvelous cinematographer, one of the best in the business. And mm-hmm. I think that this is just another great example of, as I said, fusing this both modern and classic sensibility in filmmaking to some excellent results. There are some stunning images in this movie that stand up as one of the best of the year. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could freeze frame almost almost nearly every shot in this and have it hang up somewhere. And it just would it would just like completely wow somebody if they laid eyes upon it. Oh, these shadows, man. Oh, yeah. It looks so good. I mean, but that's also matched by the sound of the movie, too, which that was something I was not expecting heading into this. You know, I, I mean, listen, I always have expectations for Carter Burwell. I like him as a composer, and I think that he does very effective work here. Maybe not one of his best necessarily, but there was some stuff in the score that I particularly liked in terms of the foreboding nature of it all, the the bagpipes that feel like they're struggling to hit their notes at times. Uh, but the actual sound of the movie in the way that they do the, the tapping uh, and they incorporate that into moments throughout this movie that completely took me by surprise and I loved every single use of that in this movie a lot of the cinematic ways that they went about adapting this piece are perfect choices especially when made together mm-hmm. 
like all the aesthetics, the way everything looks, the way it sounds, it is that is all I I really really love it. <laughs> sure, I'm not gonna deny that it looks great, um, but really for me, it just comes down a little when it gets to the actual performances and putting across what these characters are going through in the best way. Well, from a performance standpoint. You know, I because I kind of agree with you, Dan. I think that outside of Denzel Washington and to a lesser extent, Francis McDormand, everybody else is kind of just there and they have their one scene or one moment where they're mm-hmm. called upon to deliver like a memorable line or have a memorable like acting moment that could stand out to you, but they don't have anything more than that. So no one from the supporting cast is like getting any kind of Oscar buzz or anything like that because they just don't have enough meat on them to fully deliver. Mm-hmm. I think out of all of them, probably Corey Hawkins, uh, especially when he receives the news uh, that his entire house has been slaughtered by Macbeth. Th- that's probably the most emotional moment that anyone in the supporting cast probably has to work with i would counter with moses ingram oh yeah well i mean yeah no her scene is great i mean she just gets the one scene and she kind of schools everyone else in the yeah. movie on how to perform shakespeare i mean honestly like, like why are you not lady Macbeth? Yeah. <laughs> well that was another interesting choice too that was made right to age up uh lady Macbeth and Macbeth himself uh and they, you know, they've said at Dental Washington Friends and McDormand that this was an interesting angle for them to take because they see this power grab as kind of like their last opportunity now uh, yeah. to, you know, which I thought was a very interesting take. Because they obviously don't have children. And that's alluded to earlier in the film that they presumably did have a child at one point that died. Oh, I love that moment, too, where where McDuff, uh, Corey Hawkins references that like. You know, they're egging him on to take revenge, and he's like, "How? He does not have children." Like, yeah, <laughs> like, like wow. Obviously, the worst thing you can yeah. do to somebody. Exactly. Yeah, it, it kind of goes. It, it just kind of makes Macbeth's power grab that more selfish because it's not like he's going to pass this on to any children. It's just, it's just something that he can have during the last few years of his life. Yeah, and I. I wish that because that is such a great thing to give actors to play with. Like, it's not just that they're, you know, that they're ambitious for the throne. It's that this is their last chance to get anything like this. And I wish I saw it in the performances more. I didn't feel a particular sense of urgency from either of them that, like, we have to take advantage of this moment right now because we will not have another chance. I, I didn't. I didn't feel any of that. It, w- it was interesting to watch this movie and think about that myself. That oh, it's really interesting that we have older people, but I didn't see any of the choices that I would think actors would make in that situation. I didn't see them coming through. Well, it's interesting, right? Because Joel Cohen and I'm no expert necessarily by the text i recognize some famous lines here and there but like i don't know if joel cohen modified anything in the text on a smaller level to allude to that but because i didn't really get a sense of that so i mean if he didn't and he's just trying to be faithful to the text and cut stuff out instead and rearrange and shift things around then i can understand dan why 
then it falls upon the actors to convey without dialogue that feeling. And I can understand how that could get lost on somebody then. Yeah. And it's not, I, I don't think anything like that is specifically referenced in the text because usually they are more, um, they're on the earlier side of middle age. Sure. Than Macbeth's usually um, like, you know, in their thirties, probably most of the time. And so there's nothing in the text that specifically references these sorts of things. These are choices that they made in the casting and performing of it. But as a, like the only evidence I see on screen is that they cast older actors. I didn't read any of the stuff about them being older in their performances, mm-hmm. which to me is like, that's a really inspired bit of casting that I wish we could have seen actually play out. Yeah, I, I do agree that it is played more as subtext and it's not really it's it's especially not within the actual text that we see nor does it really come across in their performances having said that though i think that there are still really good performances that they are giving and especially Mm -hmm. denzel washington who i would say is actually somebody who really should not work in this role actually because he's a great performer but he does have such a like modern sensibility to him that it almost shouldn't really come across. But as Eve said, I think that the way that this story has been constructed as a way that's not specified to one particular time period in its execution, it does manage to do so. And like, there's moments where that particular Denzel charm just kind of sneaks through. And yeah. <laughs> my God, I, I never thought I would see that in Shakespeare, but it, it lands so effectively. And it's just another example of how great of an actor he really is. Oh, Josh, you need to see much ado about nothing. Oh man. I, I, I have. I have seen much to do about nothing. That I mean, that's another conversation about what an interesting adaptation of Shakespeare that is with, with Kenneth Branagh, too. But like he should do more of it. it. It's great. I mean, I would argue that Denzel Washington in a couple of roles has brought a Shakespearean quality to his performances that aren't Shakespeare characters. Do you guys want to hear something insane? Yeah. Hello. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro, host of the podcast Pop Culture Confidential. Join me as I go way behind the scenes with some of the most influential people in entertainment and media. Hear actors such as Succession's Brian Cox talk about his favorite characters to play. There always has to be a mystery. The audience have to be in a situation where they want to know what's going on. Meet studio execs like Pixar chief Pete Docter and learn his secret on how he makes us cry. Emotion is our first language. And so many others who are defining popular culture, from Obama speechwriter David Litt to Top Chef host Padma Lakshmi. We don't often think about food politically or we don't want to, but it really is. Join me. Search for Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts.
This is my first ever Denzel movie that I've seen. Bullshit. What? No, I'm serious. No. <laughs> I'm young. Oh, you baby. <laughs> Oh well, the only, literally the only other thing I've seen, you're going to laugh at this, is in Game Night when the woman thinks that That's she, not even him! I was thinking about it, and I was like, oh. okay, this is literally my introduction to Denzel Washington. So, Eve, I have some homework for you to do after this. Okay, <laughs> I understand. I know I'm missing. I know I'm missing a lot. I'm, I know. I will... I'll get on that, sir. See, see, people, this is what happens when you bring uh, young people onto the team. <laughs> I love uh, the perspective. <laughs> but you know what, though, Eve? We can live vicariously through your first experiences because we all remember what it was like when we saw Denzel Washington for the first time. And he's one of the all-time greats. He's one of the most magnetic, commanding screen performance that we've we've ever seen i know like i know who he is (laughs) and i think that comes across through in this performance as well where even if you know you're maybe not following everything that he's saying okay like fine like i get it and i will say too when this comes to apple tv plus i think that the fact that this will have subtitles will help out people greatly (laughs) but you know barring that he is doing so much with his face his flexion of voice uh just how expressive he is as an actor that it's one of those things where it's like even if you don't know what exactly he's talking about you can't take your eyes off of him he's just so damn commanding of that screen yeah he's a star (laughs) he is however (laughs) oh boy there's a caveat this is again like just me being Shakespearean me, he seems to have mistook the speed of the text for fluency with the text, at least in the first half of the film. A lot of his lines, he's kind of mumbling through at top speed in this really sort of hushed register. And I'm not really sure why. I'll admit it did take me a minute, a little bit more, to get used to his and Francis McDormand's American accents reciting the Shakespearean text, which I have obviously seen before. But it just, it took me a second. But I would say as the film progressed, I became, I I got on board and became more entranced with it. Yeah, I mean, the fact that they're the only ones that are really speaking in non-British area accents is weird, but... I don't mind it so much because it's Denzel and Francis. Yeah. (laughs) But in terms of what you're saying there, Dan, I get it. I recognize it. I know exactly what it is you're talking about. I almost took that as the tired weariness of the character at times. And and yeah, and I think that that is sort of what he's getting at. But the... (sighs) There is a sort of lack of affect to his voice, particularly in the earlier scenes. But here's the thing, though, right? If you start off that way, it kind of then helps that, you know, second half in the movie, he's absolutely volcanic. Well, yeah. And but again, that's sort of the thing that I think and maybe this could be both on the fault of the actors as well as the adaptation and direction is that like part of the fun of Macbeth is 
watching these people be in a pressure cooker for you know however long it is we're watching them and watching them slowly go insane and here it's more like a switch is just flipped and suddenly they're this crazy person i mean we hear them talking about how evil and um, obsessed and crazy he is before we see it. Mm -hmm. And they use that as the connecting material as opposed to bringing, building it into the performances. Mm -hmm. And again, like I really liked this movie, but that was something that I found lacking that could have made things even more impactful. There is, there's a moment around the midway point, I think when he is, talking to the two peasants that he's hiring to kill Banquo. Yes. Where he all of a sudden like gets really loud and angry when talking about Banquo. Mm -hmm. And then he like dials it back almost immediately. And I was like, okay, if this actually like ramps up in the next scene, that would be like a really good build to, towards the end when he's, you know, ranting and raving. But he doesn't really do that. The next scene is kind of at the same register, more or less. Well, no, the next scene is the scene at the dinner where he goes mad in front of all the guests and he's, like, fighting with the crow. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And I did like that scene. Yeah. But then again, it's like, after that, it's back to, he, it takes him a few more scenes to get back up to this mad king craziness. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, God, you just called him the Mad King. I know. And I want to see him more. I wanted to see more of a build. Sure. No, and I I agree with you in that regard. Like, I got to tell you, out of all the things in this movie, that is probably for me, like the number one element of this that I wish this film had, Uh, because I do think that this could have boosted it to be one of my favorites of the year and potentially an all-timer as is it's extremely fascinating to watch and it will be extremely fun to study in terms of a filmmaking craft level how they put this together Uh, but as far as impactful like replay value from what you can get from it performance wise and from the story I think there have been better adaptations of this mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's all style over substance that's not what I'm getting at here because you know there is still substance here but I agree that it doesn't land the way that it possibly could yeah, I, I can sort of agree with that. And actually, speaking of things not landing the way that they possibly could, <laughs> I'm going to have to include Frances McDormand in that a little bit for me, if I'm going to be honest. And I, it's not that I think that she's bad, because she's good. I mean, she's Frances McDormand. She, she's always going to be good. But there was something about her performance in this one that sort of felt to me like I was just watching Frances McDormand as Lady Macbeth and not Lady Macbeth. There was just something about her portrayal that didn't go that extra layer to really inhabit this character as much as I kind of wanted, uh, or at least my expectation maybe wanted out of her. And what I got was like what I felt was a good performance that just felt a little stunted in terms of how really deep into that character she could go. And maybe that's also just the limitations of the role itself. As I said, I haven't been familiar with Macbeth in a while, but I did sort of feel like 
this is a good performance I'm watching by a good actor, but I'm not really getting as much from like a character perspective as I want, where I did feel a little bit more of that from Denzel Washington. You know who you cannot label that criticism at and who fully inhabits their character and in my mind completely transforms? Catherine Hunter. Catherine fucking Hunter. (laughs) (laughs) Award winning. I can't. Oh my god! I just, like, <laughs> like, oh my god! Like her performance just makes me like gives me like the shivers. Like there's that one. I know this is like more of a cinematography thing, but the thing where she's just by herself and then it turns away and it goes back and they have the two reflections in the water. Oh I, yeah, I think I gasped. Yes. I think I gasped. Like that is so smart. That is such interesting filmmaking. But yeah, her performance is so tactile. It's so unplaceable because she has such a sort of androgynous unplaceable sort of appearance uh mannerisms it was like like honestly breathtaking i've heard some people compare it to like andy circus as Gollum, and i think that that's a very extremely broad comparison to make um i get it i understand but at the same time i think that that's maybe a disservice to what exactly she is indeed doing here at times um, the way that she, she's got to be double jointed because the way that she just contorts yeah, her body, I mean, that stunned me. I, I was not expecting that at all. <laughs> and that only added to the otherworldly feeling of her in this. So I have seen Catherine perform on stage. And oh. so I, I did not know that she was in this. And when she came on, as the as the first weird sister, I was like, <gasps> like I got so excited just seeing her because I know what she's capable of. <laughs> I mean, she says, you know, here I have a sailor's thumb, and she's holding it with her foot <laughs> in front of the camera. Oh like, she's so I love her so much, and I love too that she. You can't like I love that she. She plays the three witches, but also, too, there's like a scene where she has a beard and she appears to be a man. So it's like also adding to this feeling of she's not a man. She's not a woman. She's like just this supernatural being that could be anything. Oh, it's just so, so fascinating on so many levels. And the thing that really makes it work even is the tremendous physicality that she's capable of. I mean, you can't you couldn't find another actor who could do that. I mean, also to the voice, like every single line reading just sent shivers down my spine. I wanted her more. I wanted her to just be an additional scene. I don't even know. Like, just I'm like, uh, she doesn't even have to talk. Can she just be in front of the camera for like 10 minutes and then that'll be the end? But that also goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is as great as the supporting cast is when they're given these moments, like everyone makes the most of their moments on screen. Everyone. But my God, did I want more? I wanted more because <laughs> they were all so good. And that's a that's a testament to how fantastic everyone is inhabiting their roles and doing their best to translate the dialogue to an audience that I'm sure they know in 2021 is not going to fully understand. So they have to give these very expressive performances that convey the emotions and the feelings that the characters are going through. Or in Catherine's case, just a fucking vibe because <laughs> it sure is a vibe every time she comes on screen. Absolute vibe. 
and yeah, I could totally see like I, I have so many friends and people that I just know who are not interested in this text will probably never watch it. But if I were to force them to watch this, I think that they would be able to understand and follow this story pretty well because, damn, this cast is just like they're, they're really they really are giving it their all, even if the screenplay is giving them very little to do. Oh, yeah. Everyone, and let me tell you, like, oh, here he goes. <laughs> my my Halloween costume. I knew it. Is 2022. Yep, here it's it comes. It's going to be Alex Hassel as Ross. Yep, so there it is. I knew, I knew at some point he was going to get mentioned. This bitch. <laughs> <laughs> this messy fucking bitch who lives for drama. That is nowhere. It is nowhere in the text. I, it is completely his and Joel Cohen's invention, and it's so brilliant. I'm obsessed with it. I'm obsessed that, like, they specifically... He is the one performer, the one role who has benefited unquestionably from how much they cut this play because a lot of... That part is Ross, but also a lot of, like, miscellaneous lords and thanes and various ensemble members that in this version it's him mostly because we need someone that we've seen that we know to follow through right so he becomes basically like this gossip (laughs) but like prototypical evil gay <laughs> it was never a direction I ever would have thought to go for for this character. <laughs> yeah, I'm... truly, Dan. Like the minute he walked on screen <sighs> in that costume with like <sighs> those tassels coming off oh of his shoulders, God. it's like told you everything you needed to know about a character right then and there. <laughs> and like, ugh, and he makes the most out of every single shot. Like his eyes, like. <laughs> Sorry, like he's so good, it makes me angry. What do you guys think of Harry Melling in this? Because he was also somebody who has worked with uh, the Coen Brothers uh, before in uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and I've really, really enjoyed a lot of his work lately. Um, and he has, to me, that kind of English face that just fits the mold of he has an english face yeah <laughs> i'm happy for him <laughs> that's all I'm, I'm happy to see him succeed yeah. i think he gets kind of a wet blanket sort of role it, it's not really that interesting he's obviously the figurehead like um yeah malcolm he's the obvious figurehead the one that the sort of promised uh prince to return and take the throne but he doesn't really have any of the dialogue or the scenes that really are interesting he sort of has to live through his his loyal subjects like mcduff it almost made me think like i don't know i've always found it a little odd that mcduff is the one who kills Macbeth at the end of the story and then malcolm is the one who gets crowned as the new king of scotland well okay well, that's because, like, that's what happened, so... No, I, I understand, but, but like, every time I'm always just like, I mean, it should be McDuff. I mean, well, there's the... I, I think if that were to happen, then there would be no balance restored to the to this world at all, because the whole problem with Macbeth's succession to the throne is that he came by it in an evil way. He killed the king, and, you know, you shouldn't... in this In this universe of what Shakespeare is writing... That is not a peaceful manner of transition. If you if you became the king by killing the king, then 
have a lot more king killers out there. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I get what you mean in that regard. But at the same time, we become emotionally invested in Macduff's revenge against Macbeth, whereas Malcolm just kind of, in my opinion, disappears, resurfaces at the end, and I don't really care much about him at that point. Well, no, he is probably one of the characters who is uh, least well-served by the cuts to the script. <laughs> sure. I mean, I just feel like the more we bring this up, the more that applies to so many members of the cast is all. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, final thoughts on the tragedy of Macbeth. Anything that we did not mention that you want to mention or reiterate, I will start us off with Josh Parm. Uh, I think there's two things I just want to mention here at the end. One, I want to reiterate the sound design, which I think is just amazing. The way that it just layers in all these different elements to this film. And I think that it is really like a very artistic sound design that works so well with this material, which you normally would not expect because I don't think we would associate that with Shakespeare adaptation. So I really, really did love the sound design to this film. Uh, And then the other thing I want to mention is, you know, Dan said that he like had a gasp of joy when Catherine Hunter showed up. I think that was me for when Stephen Root showed up. Yes. 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 My God, I love Stephen Root so much. It's a joy to see him in anything. And to just watch him in Shakespeare, a Shakespeare adaptation from a Coen brother was like, this is just amazing. I'm in heaven right now. So even though it was only like a minute long, it was Wonderful. I love I love seeing Stephen Rune in anything and especially in this. Once again, one scene made the most of it. Made me laugh too. One of the few laughs in the movie. That's the power of Stephen Rune. He can literally make a one minute scene just come alive. He can root the life out of any. Okay, no. Okay. Don't do that. Don't do that. All right. You're doing so well, Matt. Thank (laughs) you. All right. Eve, final thoughts. I want more Shakespeare adaptations like this. I want to see Julius Caesar next in this style. (laughs) That would be juicy. Because that, you know, I, I, so many of his plays, they talk about tyranny and the sort of, uh, sort of drunkenness one can have when they get too much power. And I just, I, I just think, this, this film gave me one of those feelings that you get when you see a film that really just, just like grabs you by the heart and you just can't stop thinking about it. And it gives you, and you, I do really want to rewatch this. I want to see other people watch it and I want to see their reactions. And I want to have that feeling again when I see some of those shots and they think, what if they set Macbeth in like 1920s Weimar, Weimar German expressionist (laughs) cinema. And I'm like, I didn't know this was something I needed, but I'm sure glad I have it now. (laughs) Dan Bear. This is so good, and yet it just doesn't fully connect with me either time that I've watched it. And I really, I really wish that I liked it more. I wish that I loved it. I wanted to love this so much. And Same. I do love that cinematography, and I love the production design and the costume design. And the sound work is really great, too. And I love so many of the ideas. And I like a good number of the performances. And yet it all just, it doesn't quite come together. The whole is less than the sum of its parts. And it makes me feel 
really sad that I can't fully love it, but I really, really like it. <laughs> All right. We'll take that. Sure. Uh, I really like the usage of the crows in this. I love the, that the fact that they bookend the movie in the opening and the final shots, especially. I didn't think that their CGI inclusion was distracting. In fact, uh, when they have that final shot and they just fly over the screen, I just found that to be just such a very impactful way to end the movie. That was great. I also love that it begins with them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To just in the like the air of death just hanging over the whole movie. It's great. And I think it's like an interesting way to to cover up the fact that uh, clearly this was done in a manner that didn't have like the sense of scale to it that one would expect. So they can't show this battlefield with all these bodies and everything else. So what's another way to convey that? You know, if there's death on the battlefield, oh, we can have these crows hovering above, you know? Yeah. There are just some very, very interesting choices like that throughout here to help with the storytelling and kind of mask that they have these limitations put on place. Some of them self-imposed and some of them caused, obviously, by the pandemic. Oh, the um, sorry for, for barging in, but I loved how they did the um, the is this a dagger that I see before me scene? Oh, yeah. Where it's the it's the handle of the door. Oh, absolutely. And the footsteps approaching Duncan's chambers as like Macbeth is monologuing. It's so good. And then when he when he opens the door, he's like, that summons me to that. That summons thee to heaven opens the door. We go into blackness or to hell. Yep. Beautiful. Perfect. 10 out of 10. No, that was that was one of my notes here. And I'm 100 percent in agreement with, with agreement with you on that. That was excellent. And very well done by Denzel. You know, the moments of violence in this movie, uh, you know, the you know the way he kills uh, Duncan with the hand over the mouth and the knife in the throat. I don't know why, but I thought that this movie would be more violent than what it was. I mean, it has its moments of violence, but I think I expected it to be just a tad bit more intense. Well, Macbeth has a reputation for being a really bloody play and right. it is but it all of that blood comes in the second act <laughs> sure absolutely i mean if anyone here has ever seen the roman polanski version of Macbeth, yeah mm-hmm. watch yeah. that in 11th grade english class <laughs> she was like <laughs> if anyone needs to leave if anyone needs yeah. to leave you're allowed to <laughs> it's funny it's funny now that they have a replacement for this now yeah, <laughs> yeah. well that's probably i would much rather show my students this <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> You guys noticed that the uh, film's poster foreshadows the ending? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, well, I realized that after that's the other thing, too. If you don't know the story of Macbeth, like <laughs> even well, heading know, into the it, specifics of the specifics of spoiler alert, da, 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 da. I would just love like to like ask somebody as they're watching this, like, and they went, Oh, like, like, oh, you're surprised? Oh, really? Like, you didn't know this? No, I, I'm, <laughs> no but I mean, like, the specifics of how Macbeth comes to his end is painted out in the poster. And I was like, oh, it's very clever. I didn't really get that. Well, I mean, like, you know, the fact that he drops the crown in the fight with Macduff, picks it up, and as he goes to put it back on, <laughs> that's when Tell Macduff it. strikes the killing blow. That is brilliant. That was a master stroke. It it's really not was. specified. A master stroke, Dan. <laughs> very nice. Very good. 
You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> it's not specified that he gets his head cut off in the play, right? Oh, no, I think it is. It is, is specified it? That it, yes, it is specified oh. that his head gets cut off, but not necessarily in that way. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, Josh mentioned earlier the double, double toil and trouble uh, scene, and I just wanted to reiterate oh. uh, how much I loved the visual execution of that with Me too. Uh, Denzel Washington like with his feet in the cauldron and like the concoction and uh, the three witches just throwing the ingredients in from above. Excellent. Really, really well done. Then when the water just disappears, gets all sucked, all sucked out in between the stones. Mm-hmm. Just like think oh. of how much more of an effective visual that is than like three witches sat, like standing around a cauldron and like stirring. Like it's, oh my God, it's so, it was just so brilliant. And oh, Catherine yeah, Hunter again, her physicality, literally bird-like. <laughs> like perched up above is so so effective almost like a gargoyle yes yes i i really love that this gets at the visceral nature of Macbeth in a completely different way from justin kurzel's mm-hmm. but they both do it and i think that's a really important thing with this particular play to capture the visceral quality of his writing and they both do it in really different ways and it, i love that we have that in such close proximity to each other. Who is the guy who tries to fight Macbeth and uh, Denzel fights him without a sword? Oh, that that part was badass. Oh, I hate that word, but that's all the only way I can describe it. But then, of course, you know, when you get to the... It's interesting, because then the fight with Macduff on the battlements, I feel like is restricted by the fact that it's in this close proximity and this, like, restricted setting. I... I I found that final fight to be lacking in terms of the choreography, even though Denzel and Corey Hawkins were doing a lot with their uh, faces, you know, during that scene. But I I think I just wanted a little bit more from the sword play in this movie at times. That's all. Uh, And then my final note here is leaves. (laughs) Lots and lots of leaves. Maybe they're supposed to represent uh, things changing. The fleeting power that's here one minute, but can be easily gone the next. Away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Growing again. Yeah. Again, like, I really like that that's a really clever way to have Burnham Wood come to Dunson A by having the leaves just blow in like that. And then when he's fighting, they have the trees in the background. Ah. Yeah, very theatrical and effective. Yeah, I loved it. Exactly. And like as I'm watching this, I'm saying to myself the whole time, is this supposed to be deliberately theatrical like you're saying, Josh? Or is it a limitation because of COVID and budget and they're just working with it? I think it's very deliberate. I think it's deliberate. I, I, yeah. I, yeah, it's, yeah, I think yeah. it's deliberate. All right. Uh, well, those are my final thoughts here on The Tragedy Macbeth, a film that I really, really liked. I was withheld just a little bit from loving it. And I would definitely give this a very firm recommendation, so much so that even if you are not a Shakespeare person, uh, which admittedly I am, um, I performed in a few Shakespeare plays back in my time, and I've always been fascinated by uh, Shakespeare's work. Even if I don't consider myself to be an expert on it, I've, I've always just, you know, enjoyed it. I would still recommend this to an average moviegoer, uh, even if you have some apprehension, because I do think that the, the decisions that Joel Cohen has made with this adaptation are geared more towards that type of audience member, more so than anything. So 
8 out of 10, I'm going with for the tragedy of Macbeth. Josh, what about you? I am at a 7 out of 10. I did like the movie. I was entertained and engaged by it. And as we said, those crafts and performances are really good. That second half, for me, I do get kind of frustrated with sort of the speed of those character arcs. And that did leave me at a bit of a distance, I I have to admit. But, you know, I still like the movie. It's very well done. It's not perfect, but I would absolutely recommend it to people. Eve, what about you? I am very comfortably sitting at a nine. I just think this ranks so high in my um, this year and also just throughout the history of Shakespeare film adaptations, especially ones that don't make any that aren't, you know, a, a completely different story based on Shakespeare, I, uh, e.g. West Side Story, which I also love, but that's besides the point. Uh, yeah, I'm just completely on board with this one. Dan Baer? I am with Josh. I am at a seven. I really, really like it. Don't quite love the things that it does well. It does amazingly well. But the things that it falls down on are things that I would have expected this to nail. Okay. And now from an award standpoint for the tragedy of Macbeth, it's at a very interesting point here in the awards race, right? Because right now hasn't really gotten any Best Picture nominations, you know, from Critics' Choice or Golden Globes, but it did land in the top 10 for National Board Review, AFI, top 10 films of the year. Denzel Washington has been the consistent uh, standout here. He's been getting cited for his performance. He's gotten Critics' Choice Golden Globe nominated and Bruno Delbanel's cinematography also nominated by the Critics' Choice um, and has also been popping up with critics groups. So, The thing I keep coming back to with this is I am wondering, is this Denzel and cinematography? Is it just Denzel and the cinematography by some freaking like catastrophic event misses or does the cinematography get in and Denzel misses? But maybe, maybe, just maybe Joel Cohen could be a lone director nominee for this as well, amongst that particular director's branch within the Academy. I would need to see him get nominated at DGA first. See, but I think that this is the kind of pick, though, Dan, that wouldn't have a precursor sign that we would see it coming. I think it would be more Ah. like, think about this, think about this. I could see him getting a BAFTA nomination for this. Okay. I mean, I wouldn't put it past like being the realm of possibility but at the same time I, I don't know like the, the possibility of a lone director i still find very improbable with a straight 10 i think that was much easier to happen in the sliding scale with a straight 10 i don't know if it can really happen i still think you are going to have a corresponding best picture nomination which I would actually say is not out of the realm of possibility for this movie either. I think there's a world where people are just so attracted by the overall pedigree of this film. You know, Denzel, uh, Francis McDormand, Cohen's Shakespeare, that they might just check it off for that. And I'm not betting on that happening, but I could see it um, possibly getting into that lineup. I think, though, that if it does get into Best Picture, then we're talking about a lot more than just Denzel and the cinematography to go along with it. Well, Carter Burwell was shortlisted for the score. Yeah, if they love it that much, I could maybe see him getting in. I could see it wasn't shortlisted for sound, which was... What? 
Most no. unfortunate. Personally, that is a crime, but okay. um, <laughs> I'm not, I don't know a lot about sound stuff, but I know that this was good. Yeah. yeah. But like <laughs> if if it's getting in for picture, then I don't see why it wouldn't also make it in for adapted screenplay mm. and actress along with picture and director. No, 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 no. Now you're going too far. See, like that's where you lose me. And that's why I don't think the best picture thing is happening. Exactly. That's what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. We're not saying it's happening either, but Dan's point is if it is happening, then these other things are on the table. And I will also say that I think adapted screenplay is a more likely contender than we think it is, considering the Coen's gone in for Buster Scruggs when there was like no <laughs> spotlight on that at all as a contender. And I mean, well, it's already won something in that category. No, 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 no. no. You got to remember something. Uh, the, the Battle of Buster Scruggs switched categories at the last minute. And it was able to slide Which in. Which is even tougher, though. Yeah, but yeah, I think that that's what uh, I think that that's what gave it the the edge in the end was the fact that it was able to do that. If I'm to understand, Shakespeare's plays have never have they ever received a best adapted screenplay nomination? Branagh did for which McCall it. Um, what the hell was that show? Hamlet. It's Hamlet. But here's the thing, though. That was not an adaptation of Hamlet. That was, that was very fucking weird. strictly Hamlet the whole way through. <laughs> it's one of the most confusing nominations I've ever seen because, like, he didn't really adapt much. Really? William like, Shakespeare so- should have an Oscar nomination, people. It's like of all of the Shakespeare adaptations you could have given Brandon a nomination for, you do it for the one where he literally didn't cut anything. It's I mean, so if strange. August Wilson can have an Oscar nomination for Fences, then William Shakespeare should have an uh, Oscar nomination yeah. for Hamlet. I'm just saying. It's so weird. <laughs> but even I still, will say like, that I think it's more likely that he gets recognition here than he would in director. I agree with that. I disagree. I I really think that the artistic vision of what he is doing with this movie appeals to that director branch. I get that. I really do. But I I just I don't see how it would get in for director and miss picture. I I can see it only because I really do because here's the thing. I, even though it has landed in the AFI and the National Board Review top 10, whatever, there's still something about this movie that I said before I saw the movie. We we said it in the months leading up and everything else. This is still Shakespeare in 2021. Mm. I don't know many people that would put this as their number one favorite film of the year. Um, I can. His uh, his name is Dermot O'Day, and he's my dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, we stand your dad, I guess. I don't know many Academy members. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, but at the same time, Matt, this isn't the old rule of the sliding scale where you needed to be at number one necessarily. You just sort of need to get onto enough ballots. And as I said, given just the pedigree of this movie, I think that there could be a lot of people that will just – Name check it. And I don't think it's getting a Best Picture nomination, but I think it there is a world where it could happen. And if you were thinking that Joel Cohen could get that director nomination, I think in a solid 10, you have to consider it good, that it would get into a picture lineup, too. See, here's what I'm thinking today. I'm thinking worst case scenario. I think Denzel might get snubbed. Between him and the cinematography, he is more likely to miss. Yes. That's where I'm leaning right now in a worst case scenario, 
possibility. You know, if you want to be smart, predict both him and the cinematography to get in and nothing else. And you'll probably you'll probably be right on the money. But there's a part of me that is wondering if he is weaker than we think he is, because I almost do get the sense that not that he's not great, because I do think he is really good in this, but I almost do get the sense of it's Denzel doing Shakespeare automatic name check sort of thing. Yeah. The other thing is, like, I don't know how it's hard to tell how many people have seen this. Well, yeah, it's still early at this point. Like, like, it feels like people aren't really talking about this movie. Well, we'll definitely get, I think, more chatter when it premieres on Apple TV Plus on the 14th. Yeah, and like that's the thing that I really need to convince me that it would be a serious player for director, picture, basically anything beyond um, Denzel and the cinematography. Yeah. Yeah, and I get the argument that Denzel could miss, but the thing is, Roman J. Israel Esquire basically <laughs> all of those preconceived notions, and when it comes to Denzel in the Oscar race, so... I kind of feel like if he can get in for that movie and that performance, like him doing Shakespeare seems like it should be a slam dunk. Sure. Both very baity roles. <laughs> okay. No, no, I, I hear you. I have him in my five. I actually have him at number four right now. That's about right. Yeah. 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 So all I can say is that I believe in Catherine Hunter's supremacy and she should win Best Writing Actress. Honestly, I'm very annoyed that outside the New York Film Critics Circle win that she has not been mentioned more outside of that. That really bothers me. I imagine that it's because she only has the two scenes like people may not realize that that's her as the old man in the third. But like even still, it's like, oh, she has too little screen time. Like, don't care. She is absolutely making my personal lineup. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the other problem that she's facing is that of the four acting categories, supporting actress is by far the most competitive right now. Yeah, I, I mean, at this point, like, I already know she's not going to get an Oscar nomination. I just wish that more critics would mention her is all. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, because she is really good. Oh, she's great. Yeah. All right. Anything else? I want the costumes to get nominated. They're not going to. No, they're not. I mean, production design. I don't think that that's happening either. I think, I think even though... It's very interesting to look at in terms of, as we mentioned earlier, harkening back to an older style of filmmaking and like a look that, you know, filmmakers used to have with their movies when they would shoot on these very large uh, sound stages. I just don't think that today's Academy goes for something like that. Right. Not enough green screens. (laughs) I don't don't mean that. I just mean they, they tend to go for settings that are more packed with detail oh, i know i know i know yeah <laughs> it would be i still amazing. think it could happen though like I, I i'd say my 10 like just hanging around i don't have it being nominated but because it is so intentionally stylized to harken back to an older period i think that for production designers that could be enticing but i'm not betting that it's going to get into the final five right now i mean for what it's worth i have it at number eight in my 10 as well Look, the father managed a production design nomination last year. I think this has similar chances in terms of how the production design is used to tell the story. Uh, you might be onto something there, but then again, you're comparing last year with this year, and this year is pretty stacked. I'm just saying, stranger things have happened in this category. Yeah, like, <laughs> like I agree with you, Dan. I never thought this was going to happen. Yeah, I, I agree with you that. I don't think it's going to get nominated, but it's in the mix, I would say. Yeah. 
All right. Well, that'll do it here for our review of the tragedy of Macbeth here on the Next Best Picture podcast, Evo Day. Tell everyone that's listening right now where they can find you on the internet. You can find me on Twitter at Eve on Film, which is also the name of my own little website blog that I put little reviews on. Dan Bear. You can find me on Twitter at Dance and Dan on Film. Josh Parm. You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. the most out of every single shot like his eyes like <laughs> sorry like he's so good it makes me angry <laughs> great film criticism no i'm kidding <laughs> um <laughs> three two <laughs> hold on i'm sorry dan's horny on the pod <laughs> it doesn't happen often okay but. here we go You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death of a Film Star. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs.